2: Hello and welcome to Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing.
0: I'm Matt Enloe. And I'm Warren Kaplan. And today we have uh, another really cool guest, a friend of mine, Matt Barber. He's a TV director and editor, and he recently directed an episode of The 100. It was a second episode. And he's directed for Chuck, for Colt, forever, and he's going to talk to us about his transition from editing to directing, and we're really going to go in deep into how he prepares to direct an episode of TV, which I think is really fascinating. Honestly, I had no idea what the process is, and it's really eye-opening.
2: Yeah, I think this is a really great episode if you're curious at all about directing for television, and I think it's a textbook case of how to do it. Yeah, but before we delve into that, Matt, what have you been working on lately? So we talked about how before in the last couple of weeks I've been developing and pitching things. Well, one of those pitches is turning into something a little bit bigger than that. So I've been asked to write the pilot and season one outline of a show for a company that we'll talk about a little bit later when I'm allowed to. But it's super exciting, and I've been working on that this whole time. And I think a thing that's really interesting that we'll talk about a little bit in the episode that's a new feeling for me is that... I've been directing so much lately and haven't been the sole writer on something. And especially when you're working on things that are branded or that have other producers or things like that, you're not the final word the way when I first started out and the way that you first started out, you were right. Like when you're making your own web series or uh, your own comedy sketches, you're the decider and therefore the person who's accountable for whether or not it's good or bad. And then as you work your way up, you tend to lose some of that autonomy and now i find myself the architect of the story and the characters and the tone and the sense of humor for a project again and it's equal parts exhilarating and wonderful and utterly terrifying so that i'm, I'm on that seesaw uh all yeah. day every day
0: it's so weird i have like the same thing like if somebody wrote a horrible script I would have no problem just sitting there and rewriting the entire thing, every scene. And by the end, it would look nothing like the original script. But if somebody gave me the blank pages and said, write a script, I would just be on the internet all day not writing that script.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's really, it's really easy to do that. So that's where TK comes in for me. I think we talked about on the last episode, anytime I feel that inkling to go Wikipedia something or you know, haven't thought through a character's name or something like that. Just drop a TK, don't worry about it, and move on. So
0: for those that missed
2: it, what Matt means by
0: TK is those letters very rarely appear next to each other in the English language. So if he puts TK in his script, he can later just you know hit Apple F or Control F and find that TK and find the places that he needs to fill in missing information. Right. But he doesn't let
2: like the name of the rank in the Navy right. trip you, know, you up and let you go him. down that rabbit hole of Wikipedia. It's like dropping a little flag. But the other thing actually that I've been trying to keep in the back of my mind is something that Oren, you taught me when directing thinking about, okay, what's the worst version of the scene? So I took that to heart and said, okay, what's the worst version of this show? Let me just write that real quick. The prose can be really chunky. The jokes can fall flat. Characters can be unmotivated but at least then I have that bad screenplay that you get to rewrite. So just, you know, people call it a vomit draft. That's where I'm at right now. And it's a little, it's always tempting to want to go back and fix things and tweak things and rework things. And I have a little bit, but for the most part, I'm still just barfing my way through a script.
0: Yeah. Whenever I write a scene, the very first thing I notice is that there's like no subtext. Every character is saying exactly what they want. And I get really discouraged, but that's the thing. It's like, If there's no subtext in a scene, does that mean that you've just set up the characters incorrectly or that you've written the scene wrong and you can come back and fix it later? It's really hard to tell. But to me, that's that's the challenge of writing. It's like when someone comes in and wants to kill someone, not have them walk in the room and say, I want to kill you.
2: Right. Well, I mean, I think the, the good news is it doesn't matter either way. Either you cut the scene or you rewrite it so that it's got the subtext that it needs. But writing the scenes, the hard part, you know, that's the first step, at least. Yeah. And by writing
0: that scene, you realize like, oh, wait, this would be more interesting if I set up my character a little different earlier, you know, that my killer should be like a little old lady or whatever and try to work the subtext into the character motivations. Anyway, crazy. Yeah. I really want to do that. Sit down and write. I'm afraid it will never, ever happen.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, just keep typing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I've been writing like a lot of treatments and stuff recently. And, you know, we had our guest, Tim Nakashi, who said he's like basically his job as a writer because he's just writing treatments all the time. And I do feel like it just is getting me a lot more comfortable to write, even though it's not screenplays. But I can tell stories in a few paragraphs and they're due in a few hours and you just have to do it. And, and that's like it's those
2: deadlines that I, I wish I had in terms of my screenwriting. Well, I'll tell you what, man, it does feel I feel a little out of shape for sure. Like I used to write constantly every day. And um, now that I'm directing more, you know, there's not enough time in the day to be on set and also turning in pages. So it's definitely a thing where I feel a little flabby. So I've been hitting it pretty hard. Actually, I've been writing every day and um, most of the day, basically. So Orin, what have you been working on lately? I've just been pitching
0: a lot. I've been doing all sorts of crazy stuff. I shot that Time Warner commercial. I think I told you about it. And then literally the day after I shot it, a commercial came out on TV from T-Mobile that was like the exact same concept. So Time Warner called us on Monday and said, cancel the shoot. We said, we already shot. And they're like, well, pitch us new concepts. (laughs) You have the same due date three weeks from now. And we want you to shoot like next week. So we pitched them a bunch of concepts overnight. Hopefully on Monday, we'll hear back if they picked anything. It's interesting because the first concept they got through Tongle, which is a website I think we've talked about before, you know, where companies ask just, you know, people online. It's like a competition to pitch ideas. And that's where they got the first idea. And the second idea is basically just like six ideas I came up with just talking to friends and stuff and brainstorming. So we'll see uh, if I can replace Tongle. But yeah, so I'm excited. Tomorrow I'm doing like a practice pitch here. My friend Julie is coming. We're pitching our TV show just to some friends with like the presentation and the visuals and everything. And I'm excited to see how that goes and talk about it in the next episode. Because, you know, after talking to Melissa last week about her TV pitching, I was really inspired and I've changed some things about our pitch because of the way she pitched. And I want to report back and let you know if it worked or not.
2: Well, that's exciting. I can't wait to hear how it goes. In the meantime, let's talk to Matt Barber. Yeah. Okay, so I have a friend named Matt
0: Barber. I've talked about him on this podcast before many times, and he is an editor and a director, and he's done a ton of TV shows that you've heard of, and we have him here with us.
2: Hey, Matt.
1: Hello. Hello, Matt, Oren.
2: Hello. Oh, yeah. We're going to call you Barber, I guess. Done. For ease of... I should go by Enlo just to make things simple as well.
1: No, I think you (laughs) should go by Matt, because this is your show.
0: So you're a director and an editor, obviously, We've actually had a lot of people that have come on this show that are working directors that started editing. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got your start and your backstory? Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I've been editing for about uh, 12 years now and a lot of Warner Brothers TV shows. So uh, The O.C. and Chuck and the show Colt and The 100. And I got my first break directing on Chuck and It was something that I always wanted to do. I always wanted to direct, and I was always doing short films and stuff, but I never imagined myself being a TV director because I'm like, you have to succumb to someone else's vision. The writer is king in television, and I can only imagine directing my own stuff. And I also, being in the editing room, you know, when they were done with the cuts, the producers would come in, the writers, and if the show was gr- in great shape, oftentimes they would say, look what a great job we did. But when the episode was in terrible shape, they'd say, "You know, look at what the terrible job the director did. You know, I'm generalizing, I mean, it's not always like that. Sure, sure. But as a director, you don't get a chance to really defend yourself or mm-hmm. you don't get to stick around the process and go, there's a problem here. How can we work with, with the footage I shot? You're just, you're done. And I couldn't I couldn't wrap my head around that. I'm like, I just didn't want to do that. But I had the opportunity on Chuck, I had proved myself as an editor, and I had an opportunity.
0: Well, actually, do you mind yeah. if we rewind it a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I want the details. Like, let's right. go back to Did you go to film school?
1: I did, but I went to school for radio. <laughs>
0: In 1952.
1: <laughs> I was a good Christian boy growing up, seriously. And I wanted to do a Christian rock show because all the Christian radio was a sappy you know, BS. So I'm like, oh, let's do this radio thing. And I had a friend who was at the local college station doing a Christian rock show. I'm like, oh, I'm going to hang out with you. So I started interning at the radio station. And fell in love with it and I joined the program and it was a radio television film program. But when I when I signed on, we, they did a little tour of the campus and like, oh, here's the film department. We're actually shutting it down this year. I'm like, okay, I'm doing radio, it doesn't really matter. So a new professor came in, revamped the film program, and it started doing better. Meanwhile, I did some internships at some professional, you know, radio stations and I hated it. I hated it. They loved me and they offered me a job. It was like $6.50 an hour. I'm like, ah. Oh do I really want a shitty job at 6 an hour? I'm like, no. So I decided to like, try out a, a video production internship. And I loved it. I actually loved it. And they offered me a job afterwards. And it was like 10 bucks an hour. I'm like,
2: <laughs> I see
1: where this is going. <laughs> and so I, I switched my, my focus to TV and film. And it really was, I mean, it was a really small program. It was a tiny program. And you know, like my final film, I got the directing award you know, as I was graduating. But there was four of us that worked on that project. <laughs> And it was most of them, like two of them were like getting high the whole time. I mean, this other person was doing most of the work, but after, so that was in San Jose. So I I stuck up there and did some like industrials and stuff just as a PA and then editing some of my own stuff and directing some short films. And then my ex-wife at the time, we decided to move down to LA together. I'm like, you know, September 11th just happened. I got laid off and we're like, well, now's the time to make a change. So we made a change. We drove down to LA and... I interned for nine months. For Dan Halstead, he was a producer on like Garden State. That was his his big hit. I mean, he he also did a bunch of uh, movies for, um, he was Oliver Stone's producer, and then he went off and did his own little company. So I interned for him, and then I got my first job as an assistant editor. And I was working for Crime and Punishment, which was a law and order reality show.
0: Were you known to be an editor, or how did you get that assistant editing job?
1: There's a uh, association called ACE, A-C-E, American Cinema Editors, and they had an internship, and I applied for the internship. They loved me, but I lost by one vote. So I didn't get the internship, but they loved me so much. They let me have what I called like the bastard internship where I could you know, go around you know, and actually hang out in the editing rooms. And I got to do everything that everyone else got to do, but I didn't have any responsibility. I didn't have to write an article in the, the magazine. I didn't have to help them out at the award ceremony, none of that stuff. So I was hanging out at a, one of the editing rooms and the editor gets a call from his friend. It he goes, hey, I just fired my assistant. Do you have anyone that you might recommend? Like, well, I got a kid right here. I'll send him down. So sure enough, I get sent down to Santa Monica, Lantana, and interview and I got the job.
0: And did you know like what an assistant editor did?
1: A bit. I mean, I at the for the industrials company, I did do some assistant editing. I knew I knew a little bit of avid. I took some avid classes, but I bullshitted my way through that. Like I'm like, yeah, I know how to do this. It was a perfect job though, because it was already mid-season. There were five assistant editors. And they already have their system down, so yeah. they just said like, "Hey, do this, do this, do this." I'm like, "All right." And I'm a quick, I'm a quick learner.
2: And you can step into it and yeah. relatively quickly. So
1: within three days, I was sort of up up to speed. You know, and if I ever had a the question, they're super cool. They're like, "What? Like, how do you do this?" Like, "Oh, yeah. you do it like this." You
0: know. And did that get you into the union?
1: I was already in the union actually, because I kind of fudged it a little bit mm. when I was up in the Bay Area, the Industrials company. We did a couple documentaries for Discovery Channel. Now, I you, you need what you need like. 150 days of assistant editing. I think I had technically 40, but I'd worked for the company for three like for a year. Mm-hmm. So I just had them write a letter. I turned in my pay stubs and no one at the union checked. They just looked at my at the info stuck in the folder and said, Give us your dues when you're ready. You know, and that was it.
0: Cool. Yeah. And joining the union, like I guess for our listeners, is it's helpful, right? If you want to work on, on that level.
1: Yeah, if you want work, well, if you want to work in uh, network television, you know, a lot of unscripted stuff is non-union. Most scripted television is union. So even though I, I joined that reality series, I didn't need to be in the union, but I was in the union. So by the time I got offered uh, my first non-my first union job, I was already in. I was it was perfect.
0: Cool, and that was also an assistant editing job.
1: Yeah. So that relationship that I had with Ace, so the woman who r- ran the department, she loved me, and I like you know kept a good relationship with her. And she called me up one day and said, "Hey, the OC is looking for an assistant editor. You should turn in your your resume." So I sent my resume over.
0: This was the first season, or it was already. This was the team. first season, yeah. So you had no idea what it was, even.
1: No, I, I, it's like it wasn't it wasn't really my show. I mean, I kind of heard about it, but I wanted a, a scripted job. I sent in my resume. I got a call back from Norman Buckley, who's now a fantastic TV director himself. He calls me up and says, "You know, we're actually looking for an intern. You're kind of overqualified for that, but we'll keep your resume on file." So I'm like, uh, "You're
2: you like, know. yeah, yeah, thanks, yeah. man. Yeah. yeah, thanks, but no thanks." Yeah.
1: So in the meantime, I I, I decided to stop working, you know, non-union and i got a union job working on this really bad sci-fi film Frankenfish because filling in for my friend John Paul who beat me out at the you know the the ace internship and i was there for probably like 4 weeks and i get a call from norman again saying hey one of our editors and his assistant just got a pilot we need you know we need another assistant editor so i went came down interviewed properly and they liked me and i like said hey this is only for 6 weeks it's only for 6 weeks and we'll have to see about next season. So I'm like, great, that was my first gig. And it turns out that the editor and the assistant, that show ended up going to air, and they stayed on the show. And so they're like, well, I just moved into the next position. Now, Norman Buckley, he is a really good mentor, really good teacher. Mm-hmm. He taught me everything. It was like the film school I didn't have. He's an
0: editor? He was-
1: yeah, he was an editor. And he transitioned, he directed his first episode on the OC, and then became a full-time director. So I saw his path. I'm like, I'm going to follow his path.
0: That's a, just just a quick aside. It's something that, you know, when you're trying to become a director, it's always the question, like, how how do you do it? And you, and I think most directors will say, well, I can tell you how I did it, but everyone right. has like their own path. But I'm like more of a believer of seeing like something that worked and trying to like do the same thing.
1: I mean, it's getting harder now with, you know, as TV shows are getting shorter and shorter orders, you know, when you're on a season, a show that goes, Five years and there's 22 episodes a year. Right. There's a lot more opportunity. Yeah, but
2: people are burnt out. They're like, fine. Yeah, give yeah. give Barbara an episode. Exactly. Please. Well, <laughs> episode 70 is yeah probably yeah. a lot less in demand than
0: episode seven. Yeah, right. Of course. But,
1: but we only have 13 episodes. Like you have a fewer. It, it's harder to get those those slots. And this is what I'm struggling with. Even with my current my, my assistant editor, we've been trying to move him up to to edit. You know, and he's edited a couple. You know episodes like when I go off to direct he'll step in and edit but I keep getting on these shows that are either like short runs or don't get picked up you know so if it went for a second season then oh we'd give you an opportunity so he's sort of stuck in this weird middle ground and I'm always trying to like say like you just got to keep trying and hope that you get on a show that goes for a while you know
2: yeah it's it's so funny because I think that also those shorter orders mean that the programming is better you know, people aren't yeah. getting burnt out, and so it's funny to hear about the other side of the the story of being like, oh, as viewers, we're kind of winning out in a way, but that the industry is suffering in this un, unseen way.
0: Yeah. Well, do you think if you're like an editor on Game of, Thro- Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad or one of those shows that, right, is probably very desirable to direct, and you can get the best directors in Hollywood to work on them, is it much harder to get an episode like on a show like that from editor to director? Well,
1: I think it it comes down to the relationship that the editor has with the showrunner, you know, because there are certain showrunners, like I just worked on iZombie as a director and he is very loyal to people who work with him Mm -hmm. and he's giving his editors, you know, a chance to direct. So he knows and they, they've gone off and they've done their little short films, and everything. And they've gone through the different Warner Brothers directing programs are doing everything that they can. And then he gives them a, a chance. Now, I mean, iZombie is not, you know, Breaking Bad or, or Game of Thrones, but Rob Thomas has a very specific voice and a very, very specific vision. So it does take a lot of you are stepping into someone that that wants things a certain way. And there's other showrunners I know who, you know, don't. Like they won't give anyone, even if, even if someone's earned it, they won't give them a shot. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it, it may be a, it's a control thing or a fear thing. I don't really know, but, you know, fortunately I've been with really good people who really support me and who will give me a chance when, you know, once I've earned it.
2: You know, it's funny, Oren, that you bring up Breaking Bad. I know an assistant editor who made the jump to editing on like the final season. He like edited an episode that was like Emmy nominated. And it launched his career. And I think it's it's always telling to me when you hear about showrunners and, and just kind of departments that are good to their people and loyal and what sort of community that fosters. You know, like that's you're exactly right. That's the sort of environment that everyone is always seeking out. And, you know, it's great to to be a part of.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I always say that there's a I mean a light side and a dark side to Hollywood, you know. And if you're if you're in with a group of people that don't treat their people well you know, stay in it for as long as it benefits you, mm-hmm. but don't stay in it too long because eventually it's going to sort of suck your soul or they're going to take advantage of you to the point where like, they're not, they're going to be a hindrance to your career. Try to get in with people like the Rob Thomases and the Josh Schwartz of the world. And that like, you know, we'll, we'll fight for you when you're ready to make the next step. And sometimes it's hard to know what those people are, but as, but as soon as you know, you're in a bad situation, you know, sure. get out. Unless you're, you know, seriously in debt and you need the job and you can't find anything else. But, you know, but you right. have a reason to be there. Right.
0: But so, okay, so let's go back to your path. So you're at the OC, mm-hmm. you're the assistant editor, and some, and you're learning about editing TV. You're yeah. learning everything about no, TV. No, I'm learning obviously.
1: about how to edit. And and through Norman's guidance, I'd cut scenes, and he'd sit and he'd watch him, and he would, like, grill me. He's like, yeah, that's a good scene. I mean, you might see that on television. You know, there's a lot of editing <laughs> like that. But do you want to do good editing or do you want to do great editing? And I'm like, I want to do great. And he's like, well, what could you do better? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, well, what about this, this, this? I'm like, oh, yeah. And pretty soon I started assimilating his storytelling ethics. And he got his first opportunity to direct, which meant, you know, I could move up to to edit. And originally it was going to be a co-editing situation. Like he was going to go off and prep and then come and I'd start the episode. He'd come back and finish. Well, he came back and I saw what I'd done and it was so good you know, a little humble brag. He's like, <laughs> sure. he's like, we'll just give you the whole episode. So he gave me the whole episode. But still, it's just one episode. Mm-hmm. That was season three. Season four came around. So you
0: had been on since season one. In yep. Season three, you got your first episode to edit.
1: Yes. Okay. Yes. And because I was also the third assistant editor, like the other assistants were, they moved up like during season two and three, they got their opportunities. So I got my first opportunity at sort of towards the end of season three.
0: Just for our viewers, who some of them might not know, our viewers, our listeners, what does an assistant editor do on a TV show?
1: Their job is to prep all the dailies. So whenever you get, whenever they shoot the day before, it's the assistant's job to organize it the way the editor wants it. You know, and with Avid, it's like, you know, you have a bin and you, you know, certain editors want everything, you know, all the takes in, uh, in one area, the other editors wants it all this way, you know, just whatever particular layout that they want. And then your job is to you know oftentimes to sound mix, add some you know uh, do some temp mixing, temp sound effects, whatnot, um, prep cuts, you got output cuts, and everything. You gotta take notes during during screenings. Do um, you call
0: music and sound effects and try to do that stuff so the editor is ready to go. So
1: sometimes I mean it, it really depends, but every editor is different. Some editors are very old school and they don't want any you know temp music or temp sound effects. It's very rare these days because producers, you know, and the networks want everything to be somewhat finished. Our assistant editors will often cut scenes, you know, and that's part of the learning process of like trying to teach them how to edit. But then the real job starts once the episode locks. Once the episode's done, then they have to prep all the you know all the. Um, the shot lists and EDLs and prep all the media to turn over to the online facility, the sound facility. So that's when their real job starts and they have all this paperwork that they have to turn into the network and the studio to say, this is where this shot came from. This is where this shot came from. So the, it's
0: super technical and not super creative. Very, very detail oriented.
1: Very detail oriented. Very like you know, it's like you're doing Excel spreadsheets. You know, you're keeping track of like how many stock shots are in the show, how much music is in the show. You know, what um, you know, if a character gets dropped out of an episode, like you know, you have to track. There's just a lot of stuff you have to track.
2: Right, because all of those different details that you're tracking, like you were saying, music or whether a character is in, that all costs money basically. Yeah. And it's your job to be, you're the one held accountable to making sure that the things that you're saying are in the show are actually in the show. Exactly. Because a lot of things shake out in between writing a script, producing it, shooting it. Exactly. So one more
0: tangent and then we can continue. What are some of the cool tips you learned from Norman when he was like, do you want to make a good scene or a great scene?
1: I think the main thing is, is subtext, you know, it's just always approaching a scene with you know, where's the dramatic subtext? You can cut an episode or cut a scene, which is like, this line on camera, that line on camera, this line on camera, that line on camera. And sometimes I would, like early on, I would just, you know, I'd have to bridge something, so I just throw a throw a, re, a reaction shot to somebody, and he goes like, Why did you cut to that person? Well, I'm like, Well, I needed to cover up this line, and he goes like, Well, but that shot isn't doing anything. You know, it's like a character just looking. You know, it's like if you're gonna do that and you have to do that often, try to cut to someone who has the most like where's the dramatic impetus for this one particular line of dialogue you know and then try to go to that person reacting to that line and find a moment if you have to steal it from like the end of a take find a moment where you actually see them processing Mm -hmm. you know not just staring blankly and for me that's that was a huge revelation like every frame of footage has to have a purpose and so many editors don't they'll just say like well this shot looks cool Mm -hmm. well if, just because it looks cool doesn't mean it has a dramatic meaning, you know. So you have to be—I think—you have to be very careful about like why you're putting this in and where's the drama lie. And he's like always milk it for as as much subtext as possible.
0: Why hasn't anyone written a book about that? Like I feel like it's so helpful, and it, like a lot of times I feel like I'm talking to editors, and I'm like, this scene isn't doing anything. Like why did you cut this? Why did you cut that? And they'll be like, oh well, the continuity was off, or this was off, and, and I'm always like, well. This editor, I know, Matt Barber. <laughs> he says this, but I feel like there's never any there isn't like a website or a you can't be like well, Walter Merch
1: says this. Yeah,
0: even right? if you read Walter Merch's book, he doesn't cover like all that stuff.
1: But, that so, but I think, but I think part of it is also just, you know, a lot of taking a lot of work because I, I mean, I, I read Walter Merch's book when I when I first started with with Norman and I thought I understood it. It's like that 10,000-hour Malcolm Gladwell thing, right? Like until someone beats you over the head and says like you are trying to do this, but you're not accomplishing that and then that forces you to rethink it. And the trick is, and I think the trick, and this is for any sort of storyteller, I think, is getting it from your head into your gut. Because that's what I try to do when, I was, when I'm editing, and that's what I'm trying to do to bring to my directing as well, which is, you, know, you look at the text and you're like, what is the feeling going on right now in this script? And can I generate that with my visuals or my editing or whatever? And trying to do whatever I can to maximize that emotion. And when I'm you know, teaching people how to edit, a lot of times they'll, like, they'll cut a scene. I'm like, oh, yeah, that tells the story. But I don't feel anything. Mm-hmm. And if you don't feel anything, the audience isn't going to feel anything either. You know? There was this one scene. It was like the first feature film I cut. It was this movie called Drifting Elegant. And there was two guys at a restaurant. And one character had gone to prison because he had you know, raped the other guy's you know, girlfriend. But it turns out he was wrongfully accused, but they were like sussing each other out. I originally cut the scene, which is like line, 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 line. But one of my other editor friends said like, it's far more interesting to see these two listening to each other Mm -hmm. because they're trying to figure each other out. And so I recut the scene where probably half of it was off. The dialogue was off camera and you see the, the other two people listening and you suddenly felt something because you saw these two characters trying to size each other up. There was another episode. There was an episode of Chuck that I did. There's episode, I think, 104, where there's this whole speech where Chuck, the main character, was trying to get Sarah, you know, his CIA handler, to just say her middle name because she was so like, you know, you know, Secret. withholding, yeah, withholding all this information. And I cut that that scene where I put all of Chuck's dialogue on Sarah. It was just this big push in, and all you heard was his pleading. His his pleading. But you saw, and because Yvonne Strahovski is a great actress, you could see her struggle, like, I want to tell you, but I can't because I'm protecting you. And that's the kind of emotion that you want to get out because if you just cut to Chuck saying, you know, giving the information, it doesn't land. So it's like I'm always thinking, like, where is the most dramatic place to be? Who has sort of the higher dramatic level in the scene? And then I want to be with them reacting to information as opposed to seeing information. Mm -hmm.
0: I can probably sit and talk for an hour about interesting things Matt told me uh, (laughs) about editing that I find like so insanely helpful. Yeah. Super
1: good. I I mean, I got a lot of this from Norman Buckley, you know, and like I said, he went, he went to direct and I'm like, I'm going to follow his path. You know, I mean, this is a podcast about directing. So he went and took all that knowledge and became a fucking fantastic director. And, so I followed in his footsteps and you, you had said something earlier like you know everyone like everyone has a different story about how they you know directed and I think part of the thing that kept me from wanting to direct was because I I felt like oh I should I should do like a a big independent film or I needed to go to USC and mm-hmm. there was a moment when I was on the OC where I'm like maybe I should go to like grad school you know I actually e- emailed all my friends to say hey Poll: Should I go to grad school or not? <laughs> half of them was like, go to grad school. The other half was like, don't do it. And you're just yeah. going to waste your money. You know? What a
0: waste of email. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I, I didn't go. And, you know, I don't I don't regret it.
2: Yeah, I think you. Matt you know, went to SC. I, I did. But I, and, and I love SC. I think you were already there, right? Like you were already learning the lessons you needed to learn. And, like, I think sometimes grad school can just be a pause on your career. And so, you know, now you're, you're, I mean, mission accomplished, right? You're directing full time and like directing stuff that people have heard of and millions of people watch. You would have learned plenty of great things and learned, like met great people. Yeah. But like your ultimate goals, you were already on that path.
1: Well, but here's how I got my first directing slot. So I was on Chuck Mm -hmm. and Josh Schwartz got tapped to direct his first feature film. And is, he's the
0: showrunner on Chuck.
1: Yeah, he was a showrunner. He created the OC, and then he created Chuck with Chris Fedak.
0: And he was one of the youngest. I think he might have been the youngest, he was the youngest showrunner, showrunner ever. Yep. Network yeah, yeah. TV showrunner. He was
1: 26. So when I, when I first got my... Oh, when God, 26. I, when I, yeah. my first job on the OC, I was 27. He was 26. It was, weird to, it was weird to be like, oh, you're my boss, but you're also my contemporary, and you're younger than me. That's, you know.
2: It must have been fun to have a boss that was a contemporary and that you could relate to in that way. You yeah. Know? I think yeah. sometimes, like, old Hollywood... You know, old timers can be a little bit like, no, nah,
1: no, nah, you listen, you know,
2: you do it my way sort of
1: well, mentality. And, you know? and this is where like Norman, I mean, he'd he been editing for 20 years at, the, at this point. He and Josh had this really great bond where Josh had never done this before. So Norman was like, well, we're going to do it my way then, you know, and it just worked for Josh. And so we had a r- really unique editing setup, you know. But, you know, I built a really good career with Josh and he brought me on to, to Chuck. Now, at this point, Norman had gone off and he was pretty much directing full time. But Josh trusted him so much. Josh's like, I want to, you know, bring you on to, to edit this movie, Fun Size. Well, Norman's like, well, I have to go direct as well. So we'll do a co-editing situation. So they were going to bring me and another editor on. and We were going to do like a little editing team. Which for me at the time, I'm like, oh, this is great. I've always wanted to edit a feature film, a big studio feature film. That was one of my goals. You know, like first came to Hollywood, I said like, the one thing I want is I want to be able to go to the arc light and see my name up on the screen. You know, yeah. so I'm like, oh, this is it. Well, there's all these delays for production. It kept pushing. It kept pushing. And finally, Norman had to, had to bow out because it was just conflicting with his schedule. And because I didn't have any studio experience editing, like feature films, you know, they, they, they weren't going to bring me on. So Josh called me up and said, hey, man, I'm sorry. Like, you know, this isn't going to work out. And I was really bummed. But I realized that, like, oh, now I can, like, maybe I have a little favor to ask, you know. And so I'm like, can I direct right. an episode? they knew that I wanted to direct because I had been I did a short film and I was actually shadowing. this is the other thing I did. Like I was shadowing directors. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of directors on our, on our show <laughs> that actually went down and I'd sat down with it as long as, I mean, as long as I could because I still had my other job. But I did, you know, three, four, five days whenever I could to just, you know, shadow and watch what was going on. So they saw all this work. And this is like, this is one of my other principles. I say, like, I think a lot of people that sort of break out into the scene, they've done so much work. They're not just breaking out, you know. Mm-hmm. But like when the door opens, you have to be fucking ready, like super prepared, so that when you when that door opens, like you can step through it. You know, a lot of people are just waiting for a door to open, but they're not doing any prep work for when it does open. You know, so I was doing all this work, and then when that feature film didn't hit, it really bummed me out because that was one of my goals. I'm like, all right, well let's, as they say, parlay that to something else. And you know, they gave me an episode five oh eight. Chuck versus the baby.
2: So so let me ask, what was that like? So you've you've been preparing for your first directing gig for a long time. You know, you've done these shorts, you've shouted people, but now you're finally stepping into that spotlight. And with a crew that you know, and that they're they used to seeing you in a different role. Walk us through that that first day, you know, walking on the set for that first time.
1: It was great, actually. It was really great because everyone had my back, you know, and... Like I developed relationships with everybody. And this this is sort of sort of carried on to my my ethic of how I how I direct, which is I want the crew on my side. And so when I'm on the show as an editor, it's not that hard to get them on your side, as long as you're not a dick, you know. You're just sort of part of the family. But, you know, if you work really hard and are really cool and are really respectful of the crew and you come in super prepared, that was the one thing that you know, I've s- seen a lot of TV directors come in. They're not, I mean, I don't know if they're just bored or they don't know how to prep. You know, th- there's a lot of TV directors that just come in with no shot list or any idea of, you know, how they're going to block a scene. They're going to go, okay, what are we doing here? On, like we'll, they come
0: into set like that or yeah. they come into a meeting?
1: Yeah, you'll hear, and you'll hear a crew, like, complain about that all the time. Like, you know, it takes an extra hour just to block a scene and everyone's scrambling to get everything, you know. I mean, it's any production is always like a race against the clock but TV is even heightened because you're doing 45 minutes of content in 8 days. Yeah. And it's just it's nuts. So the more prep you can have going into it, the better.
2: I find there's there's a little bit of especially with TV, but features as well. The, your crew is a safety net in a lot of ways, right? Your crew, they're professionals. They're rolling, they're probably on this this show for for multiple seasons if if the show gets picked up, right? Like I think TV sets are relatively loyal in that way. So a director can walk in, not be prepared, and then everything can work out for them. And that can foster really bad habits if you're not compassionate to the needs of what your crew is going through. Right. So because you were part of the family, you know what it's like for everyone to, you know, be put in a position where they're trying to do their best work but someone isn't supporting
1: them. But, but I think those I think those directors that maybe get luckier or, or the crew ends up like, you know, the crew and the cast, uh, and, and including the editors, like elevate everything for them. Sure. They aren't going to be working that, that long, at least not on that, on that show, you know? Sure.
0: I always like kind of been, I mean, I've never really directed like a big TV episode, but I've always been afraid that you'd come in and you're like, okay, Hey, John Hamm. I was thinking, you know, you'd look out and, at this window over here and then you'd hear the door knock and you'd walk over and, pour yourself a drink before you pick it up. And he'd be like, eh, I would never do that. And mm-hmm. the DP, and I'd be like, let's put the camera here. And the DP's like, nah, we never shoot scenes like that. I'm like, yeah, but we can make it. It'll be really cool. Like it, I'm always afraid of that.
1: Sure. So. Yeah. I mean, and you should be that, I mean, that does happen, you know, at the same time you have to learn to pick your battles, you know, mm-hmm. because there, there's some, there's some actors that, you know, are, are a little more difficult, meaning that they, they question everything and that's part of their process. You know, it's like they need to understand. They need, And they also need to know, like a lot of actors like to test you. Like they need to know that you know their character almost as well as them mm-hmm. so they can trust you. Mm-hmm. And if you say, hey, go get grab a drink, put the glass here, and then go answer the door, they just want to know that just like, but why? And if you can tell me why, I'll do it. Now, there are other actors i will go, sure, yeah, I'll do whatever you want. Those those actors sometimes are, are lovely, but sometimes you want a little bit of pushback. Mm-hmm. So they... Yeah. Because I think that pushback is what elevates, you know, the scene, you know, just, I was just up, up in um, Vancouver directing on the hundred and there was one actress that would just like, whatever I told her to do, she would do. And I found that like, it took like two or three takes, you know, and the, the scene just wasn't, wasn't popping right. And then I, I found some new blocking that, that really sort of elevated the scene but I think part of that was she didn't push back. She didn't say, like, this doesn't work. This doesn't feel mm-hmm. right. And part of it is, you know, she's a little younger. But it's in that pushback that you, it forces you to think, like, okay, what is, like, what are we trying to do here? And what is a good, what's a good way to move everybody around, you know?
0: Yeah. I always yeah. talk about David Rom, the cinematographer that shot the hammer that yeah. Barbara also knows. And when we were going to shoot this, you know, this scene where Matt, the main character, picks up the, his prom date, he's like, so how are we covering this? I was like, well, I was thinking, you know, let's do a two shot here and some overs. And he was like, the two shot is just like the cheapest, crappiest shot in all of cinematography. <laughs> like, why why can't we find like a better shot than that? And we did, you know, and like, he's like, what, you know, what's the scene about? What are we trying to say visually? And, you know, and to me, that's like one of the highlights of my whole filmmaking career is when someone's like, hey... And they push back on you and be like, why? Like, why?" That's like what makes filmmaking fun when you realize you have like a reason to do it.
1: Yeah, but the, but the trick is, you know, when you have all the time in the world, that's fine. But the problem is when you're, you know, you're an hour behind schedule, right? And you have three hours of work to do in like an hour and a half. And then this pushback happens. Sometimes you have to spend the extra time going, okay, I know I'm going to lose a shot because I'm working this out but ultimately it's going to be better. A lot of it comes down to like process and every actor has their process. And sometimes that process is them like what seemingly is like they're being a dick or being difficult is just really them like trying to say hey, I need to understand. I need to have a way to access this, you know. Sometimes it's about control, sometimes it's about like saying, "Hey, I need to push back a little bit to show that I'm not just, you know, a puppet." A puppet. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. Actors kind of through maybe bad experiences get forced to be the guardians of their character. I think when you start out, oftentimes you're on lower budget things. Maybe things aren't quite so polished as the... Or you you get a a bad rep for not
0: being a good actor when it's not always like your fault.
2: It's not your fault. So, you know, it's in everyone's best interest for them to really internalize that character and protect that character and really understand it. And I think that that will often manifest in different ways, depending on a person's personality, you know? And so I think, I think you're exactly right. Like just being sensitive to the way in which their process works is really the, the way to open up that relationship.
1: You know? But the thing that we're asking actors to do is to live on their emotions. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And so when there's stories like, um, you know, Christian Bale blowing up on set. Like there's a little bit of me, this is like, I don't know the whole context of everything. Mm-hmm. I also know it's a really intense story mm-hmm. and it's probably a really intense scene. And he was living with that intensity. So if he blows up, I mean, no one, like no one on the crew deserves to be yelled at like that. No one, but it does happen. You know, I've, I've been guilty of that, you know, where things are just so intense and timing is so just fragile that you just, you just blow up. If the actor is, you know, for the most part, a a really good, you know, respectful person. And they have this one moment on set. Let them go. But if they're like a dick the whole time and then that happens, you don't take it as, as, you're not as sensitive to it. You're like, dude, come on. You're already pushing everyone too hard. You're being a dick. Stop being a dick.
2: Well, and I think there's also that thing where as you work more and more, it becomes more and more of a job for the actor, for, for any crew member, everyone, right? So imagine if your day job were something where you would literally meet you know, a hundred new people every two weeks. Of course, you're not going to be best friends with all of them. Of course, it's going to take you a little bit of time to learn someone's name. So when you hear those stories about like, oh, Betty White always introduces herself to literally every single crew member, that's a class act. That's amazing. That's phenomenal. But I don't fault someone for, you know, maybe being a little bit less outgoing and a little less likely to kind of be as warm as possible to everyone. You know, it's just human nature. And some of the
0: best actors in the world are famously don't even talk to their fellow actors when they're in character and stuff kind of related. I, one time I was up for this job recently, I was interviewed by the creator of the show, the showrunner, the writers, the producers, and they asked me this question, which is, you know, we're going to try to cast the best actors We, we can, but we need to put some YouTube influencers in the show because they have a lot of subscribers. You need
2: some star power, right? Yeah, that's just
0: like part of the mandate of why we're making this show. And not all of them are great actors. So, Oren, how do you work with bad actors? What's your strategy? Just like a really hard question, I think, because good actors or bad actors, they're all different in how I think you extract a performance. And I think probably one of my answers is probably not that satisfying, which is like, if things are really going bad, like I just make sure I have the pieces I need, you know, and the coverage and,
2: you yeah, know, that's but an my editor's answer. If I yeah. Them, right? yeah. But my main,
0: my main thing is trying to get them to feel comfortable, obviously on set, trying to get them to like get it, you know, to understand why they're doing what they're doing. And if they're not talking out with them, like what they would get, you know, mm-hmm. how would you say this? Or what would you do in this situation? Or just trying to help them connect to the the moment. Yeah, and if I can't do that, then, like, look to the left. Let's get a shot of that. And look <laughs> over here, and let's get this, this thing. Is,
1: this is always my question, though. Is, like, say you take, you know, five of the top directors in Hollywood and give them, like, the worst actors or, like, the, the, right. the worst non-actors. Are, are there just some people inherently so untalented that you can't extract a performance out of them? Or is or is it just, like, finding the right approach?
0: And and let's add into that, there is still a time limit. It's not like mm-hmm. you have... right. A month. It's to, not, it's not to
2: a play. Yeah, you know? yeah. I I think actually the reverse is interesting to think about as well. Like there are definitely performers from like well-known actors that are really really bad, but from good directors. And then there are other like Jake Gyllenhaal comes to mind as an actor who I don't really think is. I'm always impressed when it feels like he's really really present and really like he's thinking the thoughts and like Fincher can do that. And some other directors can't, and that's always really fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think like you look at what I always think Woody Allen is this great example because he like famously doesn't talk to his actors, mm-hmm. you know. And Clint Eastwood famously has to like go play golf or whatever at five p.m., and it's like their their direction is in the casting, right? They cast people that they know can do it, and then there's like the people like Terrence Malick or even Boyhood or whatever. And in Boyhood, there's definitely performances that feel a sure. little not perfect but that's like what i can't get i just saw an episode of modern family where they have manny you know al bundy's stepson and they had this like three-year-old actor maybe he was five who knows but he looked three and they have manny who's the little kid invites this girl from school over to study and she comes in and he's like trying to get joe to be super cute because he thinks this girl will like him more if his like little brother is like really cute and she's like, oh, how cute. This Hi, Joe. And he, like, grabs onto her leg and starts biting her. And she, like, can't get him off. And they're yelling at him to, like, let go of her. And he's just, like, stuck to her leg. And I'm like, I don't know how you could get, like, a three-year-old kid to do that. And it was, yeah. like, just so perfect. It was all in, like, a wide shot. You know, they, like, zoom in and out a little bit. Barely any cutaways. Yes.
1: Kids are hard, you know. I mean, you've worked with some kids. You know, I've worked with, oh, yeah. you know, like, I find, like, especially I work with babies, it's like when you want them to cry, they're happy. When you want them to be happy, they're crying.
0: You're going to trick yourself.
1: Yeah, well, and that's what. there was one scene where we did that. We're like, okay, they're quiet now. Okay, now let's go shoot that part of the scene, you know, and then we'd have to bounce around. But um, there's this one kid, I worked on the show forever, and there's a scene where there was this, this intruder and there's gunfire and the baby's supposed to be crying, you know. It was the most calm, like we could not get this baby to cry. It was like, and the funny thing is, so, you know, there's this, so the hero the, the the show comes and grabs his kid in the midst of all this chaos and then finds the safest place for it, sticks it in the bathtub, right? So the camera we got, we were at the end of the day, we only had like, you know, one shot at this, you know? And so we, we the baby's supposed to be like agitated. So we agitate the baby as much as, as you can. And this is the thing I, I, it's so, you feel so terrible as a person when you're like, the baby needs to be crying. Okay, poke it, you know? And even the mom's there poking with it. With like, finger, right? Yeah, with the finger, yeah. <laughs> okay. And I'm like, oh, my God, this we are terrible people. Um,
2: the but, worst is when the mom is, like, like the most aggressive person. Yeah. Right? Like, no, no, don't poke your baby too hard. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Like, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. We'll like, m-
2: this, we're
0: getting money for this. Junior. <laughs> yeah.
1: But so the ca- the camera is following following the hero, and then it pans down as you put the baby into the bat the bathtub. As soon as his hands leave, the baby just literally falls asleep. Like <laughs> you were just crying, like oh my god! But it, it was like it was like this kid had perfect comic timing. Too bad it wasn't the comedy scene. You know.
0: <laughs> so what'd you do in the end?
1: We just had a bunch of baby screams and stuff like that and cutaways, you know, and, you know, we got enough, m- enough movement to make it, to make it work. You know, it wasn't as visceral as I, as I wanted, but you know, that's the other thing with kids. Like you have to be done within, you know, I think you can, you can't be more than eight hours, you know? So I think, well, it's like, I think with babies it's like four hours and when you have twins, you can do four and four kind right. of thing.
0: Yeah. Right. So just to go back to like that question I got asked, would you have an answer? Like if you have a really bad actor, what's your strategy to work with? Poke them. them.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that music means that we're doing something very special this episode Matt Barber had so many awesome things to tell us And we learned so much about how he prepares for a TV show We talked for a couple hours that we wanted to actually split this episode up into two episodes
2: There was so much good stuff, we didn't really want to cut any of it out So stay tuned, next week we're going to finish up our conversation with Matt And We know that's a little unorthodox, but I think it's all worth it that means you won't get unpaid endorsements from us this episode, but stay tuned. Thanks for listening, guys. You can follow me at Mr. Matt Enloe, Oren at Smitey Pie Leg, and the podcast at Just Shoot It Pod. You can check out the show notes on JustShootItPod.com. Drop us a line, leave us a question. We're going to be answering listener questions very soon. So we'll talk to you guys all then. Thanks so much for listening. This episode was edited by Eric Kripow. Thanks, man. Take it away, Steve Combs. Um, I'll get into it a little bit more. Um, what was I saying? I think it's interesting that you're, um... Sorry. Ari, come here. Ari the dog.
1: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.